If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Romans. We are going to finish chapter 1 and move into chapter 2. I mentioned on Sunday, uh, this is a new thing. I've never done this before until we started this last series uh, because sometimes on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or Wednesday morning, I have four classes and one sermon each week. So it's hard sometimes figuring out which one I may come with the wrong book. So we made it easy and uh, we're studying Sunday nights and Wednesday nights the same material. So uh, tonight we'll cover chapter 2, Sunday night we'll ta- ta- tackle chapter 3, and so on. So uh, hopefully you'll be a part of those Sunday night, Wednesday night uh, classes. I love the book of Romans. I said previously that uh, I have preached through and taught through Romans in a very small way. I think I did one time, I did seven lessons from Romans. But I am, I am really excited about being able to present each chapter, all 16, uh, to you because we have an opportunity to read the text and answer some questions and also deal with some difficult topics that pop in and out. I love chapter 8, probably my favorite chapter in the Bible, and my favorite verses in all the Bible are in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So I've really looked forward to being able to study this with you, and our kids are getting ready for Lads to Leaders, and they're going to have to study Romans for Bible Bowl. So all of us as a church are studying through the book of Romans together. So today, I want to begin at verse 18. We read 16 and 17 on uh, Sunday and focused on a specifically verse 16 that says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the thesis statement. That's the key part of understanding Romans. As Paul says, I have been appointed to preach the gospel, and the power of the gospel can save. Now, he also says to the Jews and to the Greeks, and as we go through these first three or four chapters, he's going to kind of set it up to show us that there were many people in this day that thought the Jews were the chosen people. And Jesus has, of course, addressed that throughout his ministry. There are some special perks and privileges that those who are of Jewish background, not just religiously, but by race, that God had honored them as a nation. But as Christ comes, he says repeatedly in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, you heard it said of old, and now I say, and reveals that he is coming not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So think of it like this. It's a two-part movie, okay? Remember when the long movies, when you were back, you remember VHS? Okay, y'all with me? I'm so old, I remember we had to go rent the VHS player at a gas station and rent the movie. So sometimes the longer movies, there would be two cassettes. 
And so you would have to put one in and watch half the movie and rewind and then put the second half movie in. And so this is a two-part uh, a part of the will of God. Under the old covenant, uh, from the patriarchal age and mosaical age, he had spared one family, one race, up to bring the Christ into the world. So as Jesus comes in as the Messiah, the old law has been fulfilled. You can kind of set it over here. There's still things to learn from it, still prophecies that benefit us, and obviously the Psalms and some other places. Great, great messages for us today. But the application of it has been fulfilled. So we're now underneath the New Covenant, the New Testament. That's why there are two separate books in our Bible. And under the New Covenant, God does not show favoritism to one race of people anymore. Now, all nations can come to Christ. So it doesn't matter whether we're Jew or Gentile, and he's making his case for that in these first three or four chapters. And he'll use verses up to chapter 6 about how uh, the wages of sin are death and uh, to remind us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he'll use those kinds of words and phrases to remind us that now every person on the planet should hear the gospel and should believe in it. And he'll talk about the just living by faith. Faith is a key theme for the book of Romans. Now, let's pick up here at verse 18. And I want to go ahead and read uh, from 18 to the end of the chapter. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, therefore... God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the, the creature rather than the created who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only to do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this last half of the chapter. Starting off, let's mention that the basis of the Gentile guilt is that they were considered to be the worst of sinners. Now, there's some note here of those that made creatures into gods or idols, but also he goes through a list of sins that people that were Gentile committed. 
uh, and they are heinous. They are terrible. Uh, I think that there are a couple of key thoughts here. In a minute, when we take some questions, you might want to highlight a couple of those. Uh, to me, I always notice that you look at all these terrible sins, and among that list, right there sandwiched, it says haters, or uh, it says, um, uh, where is that verse? It talks about the, the parents. It says, uh, which verse is it? 30. It says uh, disobedient. Disobedient to their parents. That's in that list of terrible things. The other thing that catches my attention is the repeated offenses of sexual immorality. And uh, in the previous verses to that little list, he says God had allowed them to punish their own bodies. Uh, the, the natural thing to do, and this is what I usually use when people want to discuss homosexuality and LGBTQIA, um, you can put a stop to it in its tracks if you can have a logical conversation. And the logical conversation is that there is a natural way to have sex, intercourse, and there's an unnatural way. And it's very hard to find a good, solid doctor, even if he doesn't have any integrity at all, to say that it's okay to do some of the things that homosexuals do. I'll leave it at that. But I'll say it is unnatural. And it gives the person, the receiving person, a, 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 a sin that is abuse of their body in such a way that it injures them, okay? That's the reason why God hates it. It violates the nature of God. When God created Adam and Eve, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so by saying, be multiply and fill the earth, he's talking to Adam and Eve. He's not talking to two men or two women. And people take offense to that today. They say, well, you know, it seems that uh, God hated uh, homosexuals. God doesn't hate anyone. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. God doesn't hate any human. He hates sin. And because he hates sin, he hates it when his children sin. He hates it when people sin against his children. And so Romans is making the case that there are some people in this world that are as evil as they can be, and they still have a soul. No matter what they've done to their body, which is supposed to be the temple of God, there is still a means for them to obtain salvation because all have sinned. And he'll make a case for this very soon when he says there's none righteous, no, not one. There is not one single person who could step up and say that they are not a sinner. Though our sins may not be listed in this particular category, we all sin. So the basis of their guilt is the judgment on them is from rebellion, uh, refusing to recognize a creator, instead recognizing idols. Another one is uh, they rejected God when they had opportunities. The, the Israelites came through. They were supposed to be teaching people about God, and they, they really failed on that mission. And then ignorance. Sometimes it was just plain ignorance, that they were not taught, they were not trained. And that's the reason why it seems that Paul will make the argument that they did have a law that was written in their hearts. They should have been able to keep some kind of a moral code. No matter what religious group you go to, and no matter what country you go to, there are certain crimes that are universal. There is, I can't think of another nation that doesn't have a penalty for someone who commits murder. It seems to be that that's a universal thought, that committing murder is wrong. It's morally reprehensible. It is, it is condemned by every culture. 
Now, my question to you is, if there is no God, if there is no God, then why does there have to be that moral code? Because if we're just free beings and we can do whatever we want and there is no God to give us any structure and no laws to tell us we can't do it, why is that general rule in every culture not to murder? Well, in the Old Testament, we know it's because the life is in the blood. It's because we're created by, the God, by God, and so each of us bear his image. But they will say, well, it's just wrong. Well, how's it wrong? Who said it was wrong? Why is it wrong? And people even who are the, the staunchest atheist or agnostic cannot answer that question, other than, well, it just is. Well, if there is no God, you should be able to do whatever you want. Who puts the limitations on you? You shouldn't tell me what I can and I can't do. And so uh, there's really a a hard line there, and people will argue, again, there is no God, but you can argue with that case of what about murder? Is that wrong? Because if there is no morality and there is no truth, everything's relative, then I should be able to do whatever I want. That doesn't just mean committing murder, but anything else in this list, hating people, being evil, being a, a, a backbiter, being someone who is full of wickedness and envy and strife and so forth. And then you've got the results of this. That's the basis for their guilt. The results of it is they're condemned. Uh, They're condemned in their body for sexual sin. They're condemned uh, by their life being shortened because of sin. Uh, They basically are given up to a reprobate or to a debased mind. I don't know what your translation says. But whatever it says, it's not good. That God will allow you to be as evil as you want. Now, he has commanded us not to do certain things. He's provided his law. He's provided structure and civil governments, which Paul will get to in chapter 13, usually uphold certain parts of moral law. But here it says God will let them be as reprehensible, as evil as they want. They're punishing themselves, but that's free will. That's the the other side of the coin. Free will is that I know I have the choice to choose what's good. But also people have the choice to choose what's evil, and that is their choice. They can determine that they can be as wicked as they want. Unfortunately, there are many people in our world that are like that. Now, there are some good people that do not believe in God, that they believe in keeping some kind of code. They don't cheat and lie and steal and things like that because they know that, that culturally it is wrong to do that. And again, I would ask, uh, Why? Why do we practice that if we don't believe in a creator? Who's making the rules? Why are there laws? And usually they can't come up with an answer. But the list of sins, all these different sources are going to be nothing but problems for someone who is righteous. Another one is in this last verse, wickedness corrupts an individual so much that it causes them to practice evil again and again. Once you're swallowed up by sin, and once you uh, head down this road, James says sin gives birth to more sin. So it's almost like once you, once you do it one time, it encourages you to do it again and again. Uh, no one decides that they're going to be someone who is envious for the rest of their life. No one just wakes up one morning and decides to give themselves over to drugs or alcohol or sexual morality. But once it is committed, uh, I've heard some people talk about sins that they've committed and said it's the first time they did it, they felt terrible about it. But as time goes by, they become desensitized to it. It's part of their normal routine. And so you can almost create in your mind some kind of a reality where 
it's kind of wrong, but it's not really wrong, or it's wrong to some people, but not wrong to me, or I'm sorry, and I say I'm sorry every time I do it. You know, every time I do it, I say, God, I'm sorry, and he's got to forgive me. I know I do it again, but I'll just apologize again. And those are things that God takes issue with. In fact, I will say that the one thing in the Old Testament, if you learn nothing about God, you ought to learn this. God hates rebellion. He hates it. He hates rebellion more than anything. And when his people said, we love you, Lord, we, we want to follow you, but then they start making idols, he turns his back. And God does that. When he turns his back on his people, the numbers are not a week or two weeks. It is 70 years. It is 400 years. There's 400 years that go by from the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to Moses. There's 400 years that go by from Malachi to Matthew. There's 40 years in the wilderness. So when a, when a group of people or when the, the, the children of God turn their back on God, he will turn his back on them. That's why uh, places like Zechariah and Malachi, the prophets will say things like, return to me and I'll return to you. God is pleading with them. Just come back like the prodigal son. Now, we set the tone that everybody is guilty, all right? We understand that everybody sins. This is going to be fleshed out in the next few chapters. This is why the first verse of chapter 2 is so important. In fact, if you've got a highlighter, you're going to want to mark this one. Sometimes when we read Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, which I preached from a few weeks ago with a giant board sticking off my face. You remember that one? Okay. We want, to put, uh, uh, we want to pull out the speck in somebody's eye, but we have a plank in our own. Listen to what Paul says, and this will be repeated in Romans over and over and over. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. Do I have to read that again? He says, if you decide, who are you, by the way? He says, who are you? If you're a sinner, just like they are, who are you to say, I can judge people? Who are you to say, this person is more wrong than this person, or this one's more right than this person, or, well, that person's going to hell for what they did. And, you know, well, they were good people, so they're going to make it into heaven. Who are you, Paul says, to make such a judgment? You don't have a case. You can't, you're not worthy to hold the gavel. You certainly can't stand in the court of God. So he says, right off the bat to these Jews, before you cast judgment on someone because they haven't been circumcised, they don't keep the feast days, and they do not have a Jewish name, before you cast judgment on them, recognize there is no one. It is inexcusable that you even think you can judge somebody. And this will be fleshed out in the next few chapters. So some people will say, well, you know, Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus is talking about, you know, uh, not judging, uh, he's really talking about not judging in certain ways. No, he's saying don't judge people. That's not your job. Your job, now we can be fruit inspectors. We see someone bearing bad fruit. We can notice the list. We can approach them and say you shouldn't do this. But to condemn someone for what they are doing, God sees the heart. We only see the action. And many times it would be interesting if you could find out the history or the story behind this person. Sometimes people are hurting and they're struggling. And the things that they do are not necessarily because they hate humanity. It's because they hate themselves. And they do things to punish their own bodies because they do not feel loved. They do not feel received. So what happens when the church is judgmental to them? Well, we're not received by even the saints of God. Well, we as children of God 
recognize that we are the body of Christ. So if the body of Christ treats people with, with uh, dishonor or uh, condemnation, if that's what the children of God do, then that reflects God. So cultures, people, many, many people will be lost because of the way we approach people. Now, I'm not saying we don't need to approach them, but we have to be careful in the way we approach people. We can call sin, sin. There's no question with that. Sin is sin. It is written in the book. The way that I explain this is when you talk to somebody about sin that they've committed, you come at it from this point of view, and you say, this is wrong. God's word says that this is wrong. You might even present Bible verses. You know, God said in his word, don't do this. Don't, God says, you know, don't give yourself to drunkenness. God says, don't give yourself to sexual immorality. Why would you want to do that? God says that that is, is something that can get you condemned. You know, we don't condemn them. God's word condemns them. Our problem is when we go to people and we use our own language, they hear us. But if we're using the voice of God, teaching them the truth in love, they're going to respond a whole lot easier. Uh, some might say, well, maybe they need a harsh hand. Maybe somebody needs to just strike them down. Somebody needs to put them in their place. That's not doing it in love. But what we can do is the approach, like I said, go to someone, say, you know, I love you. I'm concerned about you. You're, you're living a lifestyle that is painful to you. It is harmful to those that you love. And it, it breaks my heart. And it certainly breaks the heart of God. That will, you know, it's the difference between flies and honey. Uh, and flies and vinegar, right? So he says, it is inexcusable. You underline that. It is inexcusable, oh man, if you think you should judge somebody. And put that in the context of chapter 14, which we'll get to in a few chapters. He says this in verses 10 through 13 there. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And he's going through the list previously. And do you think this, oh man, you who judge those practicing those things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? In other words, your list may not be exactly quoted here in chapter 1, but you have a similar list of sins. So who are you to say you can judge somebody when you have sin in your own life? That's the same thing Jesus said. you got to take that plank out. And it's really hard when somebody comes to you and says, you need to repent, you need to do this, and you look at them and you go, man, you're worse off than I am. How dare you tell me the things I need to change when you're living a life that you are. And I've often found this too. If I can, I'm not meddling, just making a point. I have often found that the people that are the harshest and most judgmental are the ones who have great sin in their life. That they are guilty themselves of things that they have done. And they hate themselves for committing those sins. And so they punish other people because they want to deflect from the sin in their own life to the sin in someone else's. And so if you meet someone who's harsh and critical and backbiting and all these, you know, hating and anger and strife and causing problems, that you just take a moment and pray for that soul because they got a lot of trouble in their life. Most of them will be so deep in sin, but nobody knows it because they hide it so well. But if those are the practices of the ungodly, and they are practiced by godly people. They are on the wrong team. They are not submiss submissive to God. They're submissive to the devil. In accordance, verse 5, with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath and the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is the key. The righteous judgment 
of God. Now, Jesus says in Matthew to practice righteous judgment, and people often use that. They abuse that passage. They say, well, we could still judge with righteous judgment. He's talking to the Pharisees that they can't judge like God because, as he'll say in this book, there is none righteous, no, not one. I can judge people. There is none righteous, no, not one. Well, I can offer righteous judgment. Didn't Jesus say he told the Pharisees that because they were so harsh and they had sin in their own life? Anyone, anyone who reads these verses and is honest with the text cannot say it's okay for them to judge people. He is repeatedly saying, you're going to face the wrath of God. You're going to face the judgment of God. And as Christians, we start looking in the mirror and going, man, have I... If I'm, am I guilty of some of these things? I need to repent of those things. So he says, you have a terrible heart. You know, you're going to face God. You're going to face the wrath of God. Verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. You, you want to call out people for what they've done? God's going to call you out for what you've done. If you're harsh to people, God will be harsh to you. If you extend mercy, he will extend mercy to you. A lot of Christian living is about doing what God does. Showing mercy, showing love, showing forgiveness. But if we are the opposite, again, we're on the wrong team. We're using the same characteristics of the devil to to use those uh, sins and and punish people for the mistakes they've made when we want to get grace. I want to take their grace from them, but I want to get double portion. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient uh, continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Can we say that again, verse 11? For there is no partiality with God. With God, when God looks on humanity, Paul will say to the Galatians, chapter 3, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, slave or free, male and female. We're all humans on the earth that are subject to the will of God. There is no partiality. People are not going to get in to heaven just because they say they wear his name. There will be people on judgment day that will wear his name that will not be allowed in. He'll say, I never knew you. You didn't work for me. You may have used my name, but you didn't work for me. It's kind of like on Halloween, there's going to be people dressed up. Be careful, that's probably not the real flow progressive lady. And that's probably not the real Krispy Kreme guy delivering donuts, right? It's probably not Superman. It's probably not Batman. It's probably not Wonder Woman. It's probably not a doctor. They're in a costume. And there are people today that costume around as Christians. But they are living in sin. So be careful when you see the costume. Verse 12, for as many of us as sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many of us as sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers. That's the difference. This James and Romans go so well together. Doers of the law will be justified. For we, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law that these, although not having the law, are the law to themselves. They have a law to themselves. It's kind of a moral law that's written on their heart. Verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. He says there will be people that under the old covenant lived a good moral life. 
And they may be spared in eternity, even though they were not Jewish. There will be Gentiles who make it in to the gates of heaven under the old law. But he'll make a case also here that now we're in Christ Jesus. So the law does us no good. And if we want to follow the old law, we have to follow all of it. That's the book of of Hebrews. Indeed, he says, you're called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things which are excellent, being instructed out of law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach to a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. So he goes on to say, verse 25, For the circumcision is indeed profitable to you to keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, and they're righteous because God says that they are, Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, a Gentile will become safe because of the blood of Jesus, and those Gentiles will be safe also because of the blood of Jesus in the, in the new covenant, if they fulfilled the old law and it's been done away with. For he, verse 28, is not a Jew who is outwardly, nor in circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, that reckons back to Jesus' teaching, in, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. He says, there is a transition into this new covenant where you move away from that law. And those things that you used to think made you safe, like circumcision and feast days and observing those things that God has required of us, considering sacrifices and prayers and incense and all of that. He says, if that's what you're holding to, that circumcision is not going to hold up anymore. You know, it's not going to do you any good. And this is why uh, Peter argues this in chapter 11 of Acts, and Paul has to argue it a couple times in Acts and in Galatians, that the circumcision was no longer required. There were people who came into the church as a Gentile, and Jews were telling them, you're going to have to become a Jew first. We need to have a proselyte conversion that takes place. And they finally decided in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 that that was no longer necessary. And at that point, they quit teaching people that circumcision was the only way to live. It's fine if you're not. And that really is uh, very, very simple, I guess you could say, in the presentation of this particular chapter, is Jews and Gentiles are created equal, and Jews and Gentiles are saved equal. And praise God, we don't have to jump through those hoops of the Old Testament anymore, because I, I say quite frequently, I would have had a hard time giving up bacon. So there are certain things under the old law you couldn't do, and now under the new covenant, we can. We can do it. God has removed it. He has fulfilled it. Didn't destroy it, but he fulfilled it. Think of it as finishing volume one and setting it on the shelf and starting volume two. And volume two is really the most important because at the end of volume two, the series finishes. The book's finished. So God will complete all things when he sends Jesus back uh, uh, once again. And so the privileges, we'll get into next week in chapter 3, no wait, Sunday night in chapter 3, I've already worked on those notes. 
And we're going to go through some anticipated questions. Paul's going to say, if you're a Jew, here's probably what you're thinking. And then he tells the answer. Uh, Also, he'll say, Jews, you probably think this. And then he tells them the answer. He does that with at least three main things in that third chapter. Uh, And these Gentiles who had lived very pagan-like lifestyles were just simply not accepted. And, and Jews were judging them, saying, well, we've, we've never done this, we've never done that. Paul and Peter both wrestle with this. Uh, Paul actually talks about he's a Pharisee among Pharisees, if you want to get Pharisaical about it. And for Peter, he comes to the house of Cornelius and basically gets to the doorstep where he's sent by God and he says, I shouldn't be here. His first words to Cornelius is, you know, I'm not supposed to have fellowship with you people. And he's automatically setting up this barrier, and there's no doubt in my mind, because Peter likes to talk. He got to preaching, and God just sent down the Holy Spirit. And as he did that, they look around, and Peter goes, well, let's get him to the water. You know, let's get him baptized. What should hinder them from being baptized? Let's get to the water. And God says, you know, you need to go teach them. You need to go convert them. And Peter goes into this diatribe of how Jews are better than Gentiles and how Judaism is a faith that has been passed on from generation to generation. It sounds a lot like Stephen's speech to the Pharisees. And so God just stops Peter. And he uses that opportunity by pointing out the Holy Spirit to humble Peter into performing those baptisms. Now, I'm not saying that he wouldn't have baptized those folks if that hadn't happened, but wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall if he had just preached the way he was preaching? Didn't seem to me like he was getting somewhere. So God pours out the Holy Spirit. Peter then is convicted to baptize these individuals. And if you'll notice, the next chapter, that's Acts 10. and Acts 11, he has to go before that council of elders in Jerusalem and defend it. And he says, wait a minute, guys. I know how y'all feel about circumcision. I know how you feel about the Gentiles. I know how you feel about their pagan ways and the eating of meat sacrificed to idols and and even many of their names. What do you do if you convert somebody and their name's a pagan god? Do they have to change their name? There's a lot of things you don't think about. And so he comes to them and he says, this is a God thing. This is not me. This is a God thing. And he defends a whole chapter of him defending himself, saying that God brought Cornelius And they glorify God in the end, but you know at the beginning they had to be really questioning, Peter, what are you doing? You can't convert people and not tell them circumcision is required. So so Peter wrestles with that, and we get the chance to read through it in Acts because Paul is going to be set up as the next great leader, if you will, through Acts, and he is going to go to the Gentiles. And he has no problem converting Gentile Christians and and causing them to preach. This happens with, uh, with Timothy and some others, that they had Gentile backgrounds, and he says, praise God for it. They could reach a new audience. The, the fear is, and I'll end with this and we'll have some questions. The fear is sometimes in the church, when we use judgment and harshness, not only is there hypocrisy, Not only is it the uh, antithesis of what the church is supposed to be about, but it is about bringing judgment upon ourselves. It's about heaping the judgments and the harshness. If we are cruel and and judgmental towards people, God says, I'm going to place that on your back. So it's really about getting finely in tune with the will of God. What does God want me to say and how does God want me to say it? Because you can say the right thing the wrong way and do damage. You can say the right thing at the wrong time and do damage. I watched a video just this week of a man who, a preacher, he was a single guy, and there was a widow, her husband died, and at the funeral, he knelt down and proposed to the widow. Bad timing, bad timing. I don't know who would do that, to propose to a widow at her husband's funeral, but that's what he did. So you can do the wrong thing at the right time, or you can do the right thing 
at the wrong time. So it's about timing, it's about attitude, it's about perspective, and it is certainly about Scripture. So we have to do things the way that God has called us to if we want to do things successfully. And this sets the tone for the rest of the book because if we will learn to love people as God loves people, we won't see skin color, we won't see race, we won't see nationality, we won't see language barriers, we won't see nationality from another nation that's unlike ours, that doesn't look like us or talk like us or worship like us. We will look at all people as human, as children of the Lord who are deserving of the same judgment that I should get, and that is condemnation. But yet, by the grace of God, they can receive salvation as I have received salvation. But I never lose sight of the fact that I do not deserve the mercy and the grace of God. I don't deserve it. I don't. And, and I am thankful to my God that I had a mother and a father and grandparents that brought me to church and brought me to vacation Bible school and taught me to read my Bible and prayed with me at night and sent me financially when they could to church camp. And I decided to go to a Christian school. I'm thankful for all those things. All those things helped me to get to where I am. But there are people in this world that did not have those privileges. You do not stand in a line on, on the day you're born and go, okay, I want to be born to a middle-class white family in America. You don't get to do that. You don't stand before God and say, I want to be a male. I want to be a female. You don't get a chance to stand before God and say, I want to be from Australia. or I want to be from Africa. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Give me a mom and dad that live together. Are y'all with me? You did not get a choice. You're born into an environment you have no control over. And so before you judge someone, realize that you need to walk a mile in their shoes. You don't know where they come from. You don't know what they were taught. You don't know, they may not even know how to talk religiously with you. They may not understand the Bible. So don't mock, don't criticize, don't judge, because you don't know where they're coming from. Every person that comes into this earth, God provides a way. I didn't choose. I didn't choose to be six foot four. I didn't. I wish I was smaller. Some people say, I wish I was taller. I don't. That's a long way down to tie my shoes. I didn't get a choice. I didn't get a choice in brown hair. I didn't get a choice in brown eyes. Now, some of you... You go to see people and they change that for you. But the fact of the matter is, I didn't have a choice how I was born. I didn't have a choice to be born into a family where there was a mother and a father in a home. There are people who are born into families that do not have a father. So before you become critical, recognize that there are a lot of people that have gone through a lot of difficult things. So take that into perspective before you become harsh. Same thing with the way people dress and the way people act. Some people just don't know better. Uh, there's a lot of this generation that, I don't know, I, I guess they learn from YouTube. They're learning now from TikTok because the parents aren't teaching them. And so be careful before you just automatically criticize someone because that is a soul that is deserving of hell the same as you and me, but they also have the privilege of receiving heaven just like you and me if they follow Jesus. So um, that sets up this judgment talk in chapter 3 because he's going to pound it home. Don't you judge. Don't you judge. Don't you be a judger. Don't be a critic. Don't be, a, don't be hypocritical. And he's saying this to a Jewish audience that was, that was judging Gentiles, but it sure does work good from a church perspective to talk about unchurched people. Just be very careful. All right. So, got a few minutes here. Make the one take the questions. All right. Anything we've talked about in this little section? Anybody got any questions or thoughts? I'll ask some if nobody's got any. Okay, Ben. Of uh, what caused God to grant Solomon his wish for wisdom? 
in First Kings chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Mm-hmm. You know, Solomon wanted discernment mm-hmm. and, and the heart when he judged people to see past what he was looking at. Right. And see what was going on with the people, so that he could help them determine what's good and evil. He he wasn't asking things for himself, right? Because he understood he wasn't capable of judging God's people. That's a great that's a great illustration for two reasons. One is because Solomon gets the wisdom he asked for for uh, discernment. The second thing is in the New Testament church, there is a role that is filled. Uh, and Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians the ability to discern or to judge. The word can be interchanged there. And that is the shepherds of the church that have an opportunity to help and guide and encourage. And so just like the elders of the old covenant, if there was a person who had a problem, they brought it to the elders. That's what uh, Rule or Jethro is his name in some translations. Moses' father-in-law encourages him to do that. And so they have these judges, these elders. That's what they're called, elders. And they kind of help discern. And the New Testament church, the same. So when there's problems and we can't handle it, Matthew 18 says you go to them, then you go to them with a couple of witnesses, then you take it to the church. And I think that means to the elders to help discern, to help try to come to an understanding of what the truth really is. Very good. Somebody else raise their hand. Anybody? Who else raised their hand? Casey's thinking. He's working one up. All right. Why Why is this such a touchy issue today? Uh, I think some people, whenever you ask them and they're not Christians, they'll say it's because Christians are hypocritical or judgmental. Why is that said? Is that fair? I mean, is that really fair? I don't think think we all are, but is that a fair assessment of Christianity as a whole? Do you think all Christians are judgmental and harsh? Then how did we get to that point that so many people think that we are? Anybody got an idea? How did we get to here? Yeah. Let's go over here to Jeff first. Okay. And Casey's next. Oh, Crystal. Okay. Go ahead, Jeff. I think there's, there's enough like that that somebody doesn't know enough of us to get that perception. And just, it's easier to just say, well, they're all like that. Right. And turn away. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we do that sometimes with people. Like if you, if you go to a, I had somebody once tell me they said they had a really bad chiropractic experience, and so they just swore all chiropractors were, you know. I'll tell you, I got one over in Fairhope. He's the bomb. He's awesome. But some people will have a bad experience. Same thing buying cars. I'm never going to a dealership because I had a bad experience. Uh, I'm never going to, and that's just really wrong. I say t- oftentimes, I've heard me say this from the pulpit, if I get made mad, mad at a, a food joint, but I'm not going to stop eating, right? I just don't go back to that food joint. So if there is a group of Christians that are harsh and judgmental, just don't go back to that church. It doesn't mean you give up Christianity as a whole. I don't want to get to heaven's gates and go, well, Lord, I love you, your people I don't love so much, so I just decided not to go hang out with them. You know, what's God going to say? <laughs> if you're a part of my body and my church, you're part of the worship. You're a part of the, the, the congregation's environment. That's what you're supposed to be. Thank you.
Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.